want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine that you have an open job that you're supposed to fill. So you're supposed to find the right candidate for this job. And somebody says, I know the guy you should hire. And he starts to describe this person. So I want you to ask yourself, would you hire this person? And they say, I know this person who has never learned from his mistakes. He, in fact, never even admits to making a mistake. His leadership skills have never improved. He has shown no sign of character growth. You rarely get a straight answer to your questions from him. And if your opinion is different than his, he just says you're wrong. He has a my way or the highway approach. And he won't be friends with those who fail to do his commands. And yes, he uses that word. Would you hire this person? What? Okay. Congratulations. You just fired Jesus. Okay. That is not the kind of person you had in your mind. I know what kind of person you had in your mind. I, I wouldn't suggest hiring this person. Unless it turns out to be Jesus. That's a whole... <laughs> that, would that is not the kind of person you had in your mind. Obviously, right? You you had a person who would be well, just somebody totally not like Jesus. Thank you. If you made a story about a person like this, you cast him as the villain. But all those attributes actually apply to Jesus. But Jesus is so weird. But he's weird in every right way. Jesus' leadership style never should have worked. But somehow it did. And that's the strange thing. How did this work? And not only did his leadership style work, there are millions of people who still follow him to this day, to the point of giving their lives to him, including his own disciples who gave their lives to him in a literal way, many of them which died. So Jesus, Jesus is the weirdest character, both in fiction and in real life. If you look at the fictional characters, they're not the same. Right? Jesus' character is better even in the fictional ones. So I want to think about this, because there's a book written in 2019. This, come, this whole argument I'm going to make here is a pretty old argument. It comes from the 1800s. And, but there's a book in 2019 written, and I love the title of it. He says, Jesus is a story. His story is too good to be false. And I think he's absolutely right about that. Non-believers will tell you that, well, Jesus was just this fairly normal rabbi with special effects. Special effects being miracles. He's just some normal guy, and he just did these other things. So, you know, you take the miracles away, and you're left with nothing. That is not true. I want to look at Jesus, and listen, let's not even talk about the miracles. right? Let's not appeal to the special effects. Let's just appeal to his character. And then you're going to see you're still stuck with a miracle. Here's some things. I want to talk about some things that Jesus did not do. It's very different than the way we would do them. You get this. Jesus never used his powers for his own benefit. Now, I think that's actually way weirder than we tend to make it out to be. I mean, think about this. He comes from heaven to live as a poor man with all these powers. I mean, don't you kind of think maybe he should get a free sandwich out of it? But he doesn't use his powers like that. I mean, that is far more unusual, far more loving than I think most of us have actually grappled with. Okay, think about this. In Jesus' story... He gave his consent to be born. It wasn't just that he died. He knew what he was walking into. And there's actually a group of people that are that have sued their parents for have, having them. Literally, this is a thing now. 
And they call them antinatalists. And they say, this really doesn't make any sense. I'm not quite sure how they thought this was going to work, because how would your parents ask you whether or not you wanted to be made? Because by then it's a little too late. But, okay, this is what people, but this is what people say. But it's true. You do not have a choice whether to be born. But Jesus did. Okay, that's what the gospel story says. And he still consented to it. Here's another weird thing. Jesus seldom quoted scripture as his source of authority. Now, when we talk about how you need book, chapter, verse, amen. But Jesus rarely actually did that. Okay, you got to understand that this is in contrast to the Jewish writings of the time. Let's look at the Talmud. And I did not cherry pick this. I literally spent about 90 seconds. This is how the Talmud reads in many, many parts. But I want you to see how many times they refer to their authorities, okay? But Rabbi Ishmael ben Rabbi Yeshi, okay, there's reference one, said in the name of his father that even if woven together, they may be used. And so Rabbi Doza says, following in his opinion, the one who puts a covering over a wagon is higher than... Rabbi Yoshi, then Rabbi Yehuda, who says in the name of Rabbi Yoshi, the one who sleeps under that wagon is one like the, the one who sleeps under the bed. And the one who sleeps puts up under four beams, covers them, I hope you guys are following this, covers them over, Rabbi Yaakov said, okay, and he just keeps going. Source after source after source after source. Jesus did not preach like that. So, uh, if you know, good authors cite sources. Josh and I were just talking about this, how somebody will say, well, Homer referred to this, and they don't cite the source. Maybe Homer did say that, but it's hard, because you, how do we know that Homer said that? Now you have to go dig it up to verify if it's true. But then there's Jesus, right? If Jesus wrote a book, it would have no footnotes in it. A lot of footnotes, that's actually a sign of a good author in every case, except for one. And if Jesus did write a book, his footnotes would just say, source, me. Take the phrase, thus saith the Lord. It's a pretty common phrase, except for Jesus. Said over 400 times by the prophets, but Jesus says it zero times. That's kind of weird. And the reason for this is that Jesus was speaking with the authority of God, not just with the authority of God, but he was probably with the authority of God, not just for God. There's a difference. Imagine, so we just hired a preacher pretty, not too long ago, but I want you to imagine that you're looking, you're at a church, you're looking for a preacher, and you have a guy come in, and he does a lesson for you, and he says, hey, don't worry, guys, just want you to know that I don't come to abolish the Bible, I come to fulfill it. You would be like, nope, that one's off the list, okay? He's probably going to have a very short career. But this is what Jesus said. I mean, there's so many statements when you really think about what they mean, they're way weirder than you would think. You know what the greater surprise is? Jesus actually pulled this off. He actually made this international movement. He pulled it off. I mean, he did get crucified, so it's that. But but he did. He was successful in the end. And there's all these other examples of him claiming authority. This is so strange. And in Matthew 5, he overrules what had been the rules about divorce and oath-making. In Matthew 19, he even tells you why the rules had been made. He just speaks in that background. He says, oh, well, this rule was made because Moses permitted you to divorce your wife because of the hardness of your heart. He actually knows the background. Where did he get that from? In Matthew 12, I'm kind of shocked that he didn't get stoned for this. He called himself the Lord of the Sabbath. I think about how strange that is. He didn't proceed to tell you why the Sabbath was made. It's like, I don't need to know the rules about the Sabbath. I know how they were made. And it drives me nuts, but the skeptics will say things like, oh, you know, the John has this high view of Jesus being God, but not the other one, especially not Mark. Really? Okay. 
go back and read Mark. Okay, Mark says things like, has Jesus say things like this, something greater than the temple is here. Okay? In John 5, verse 46, he says, yeah, Moses wrote of me in the law. Really? I mean, didn't they have somebody running for president? And they're like, yeah, Thomas Jefferson wrote of me in the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> I'd say that person wouldn't get elected, but, you know, weirder things have happened. <laughs> in Matthew chapter 5, he talks about how the prophets had been persecuted for God's message. And he says, and you people, blessed are you when you're persecuted for my message. Did you just catch the cross that he did? You're going to be like them for my message, but when you first see that Old Testament story of the prophets, it's God's message. He's putting himself in the same position. Here's a, a weird one. A really weird one. That I had just, I hadn't heard about this. I've been working on this for a while, but it wasn't until fairly recently that I had found out about this. That Jesus never called God our Father. This is like a minor detail, but this is consistent among the Gospel accounts. He only says this phrase one time, when he tells us how to pray. And that's, so that's in Matthew 6. But he himself never prayed quite like that. And what's even stranger is in John 20, verse 17, he awkwardly avoids that phrase. He doesn't want to say our father. Okay, And in that story, that's where Mary, Mary Magdalene finds Jesus after he's resurrected in the garden. And, and Jesus says to her, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go and tell my brothers, this is where the awkward phrase comes in, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Why didn't he just say, I'm ascending to our Father and our God? It's a lot faster. In fact, it's almost, I, did, I counted the Greek words, it would be, it's only one word off from being half as many words. So why does he awkwardly avoid this phrase? And I think the answer is because Jesus' relationship with his Father is not identical to our relationship with the Father. We have one with the Father, but it's not exactly the same. And so he refers to this relationship differently. Gilson puts out a good example in this in a book, uh, like the book I referred to before, called Too Good to Be False. And there are some religious groups, Catholics, Episcopalians, that will call the priest a father. So let's just go with that for now. And so imagine there's this small town, and there's a boy in this town, and he is the son of this priest. And this boy is talking to another kid in the town, and they're, they're talking about some Bible subject, and then, and then the son says... To the other boy, he says, well, let's go talk to the priest, which is, of course, father. And so the son of this priest says, I'll ask father and my father. Now, that's a bit of an awkward phrase. So why doesn't he say, well, our father? Well, because his relationship with the father is not identical to the relationship that the other boy has. Now, both can call him father, but not in the same way. And I think this is what's going on here. Another strange thing is only Jesus says the phrase, my father. The apostles don't say it like that. Now, they do refer to God as Father, but not quite like this. His relationship is a little different. Here's another weird one. Jesus is not described as, he never had faith. I'm going to give a caveat to this. Okay. He never said he had faith in the Father. Nothing else in the Gospel says that. Now, faith is a big deal. Luke 8, verse 25, after calming the story, he says, where is your faith? This is a big deal. He gives the counterexample, Matthew 17, 70. He says, oh, unbelieving and perverse generation. Now, faith is really important. The Gospels make a big deal about this, and they mention many of Jesus' virtues. And Jesus mentions this virtue more than other for us. Now, you, in, in fact, Hebrews 11, 6 basically says, 
If you do not have faith, you are not pleasing to God. No faith, no pleasing to God. Now, there's a caveat, because I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, what about Hebrews 3, verse 2? Because it says, he, Jesus, was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. And if you know about the words, pieces of the in the Greek, you know that has a semantic grade, just multiple meanings. And I think in this case, he's actually more referring to him being obedient. So what kind of faith are we talking about here? And if you think about how faith works, it's, this actually makes a lot of sense. Okay, faith begins with knowledge, but it is not complete knowledge. It has gaps. So in the New Testament, it oftentimes refers to faith, but it uses faith to talk about things in the future that have not happened yet. And if you follow this, it actually makes a lot of sense. So you do not need faith in a certain sense to believe in Jesus' resurrection. You have proof. You have data. An historical account. And that's what Paul says. He doesn't say, oh, just have faith that this happened. He says, look, we got witnesses. But you have to have faith in your own resurrection because it has not happened yet. A verse that's oftentimes misunderstood by skeptics is 2 Corinthians 5 or 7. So it says, we will walk by faith, not by sight. And what skeptics think is, oh, you're saying you don't need data. You don't have an historical case. But that's not actually what this is referring to. Look at it in context. Paul is referring to our future resurrection. How do you know that's going to happen? It hasn't happened yet. You don't have data in a certain sense. So when we don't have complete knowledge, we fill in the gaps based on our history. So if we know that God keeps his word, that's the history, and we know that God gave us his word that this would happen, well, then therefore we can fill in the gap and say, well, we would believe his word, that this will happen in the future. This makes sense. This is what faith, how the New Testament thinks about faith. Now, Jesus, for him, faith like that wouldn't have quite made sense. Because he knows the Father in a deeper way. In John 8, he makes reference to this. 8, 45 to 40, uh, 40, 54 to 40, 55. Wow, he botched that. 8, 54 to 45. Uh, I still botched that. Wow. John 8. He says, you do not know him, speaking of the religious leaders, but I know him. He had this intimacy there. So Jesus couldn't have faith in the Father in the usual sense. And there's no real word to quite mimic this relationship, quite represent it. God cannot have faith in God. Right? It's like, I cannot have faith in myself. In a certain sense. You ever notice, too, by the way, we say that? So I have faith in myself. We only say that when we're actually doubting ourselves. Okay? I can't have faith when I know that I saw something. I would just say, I saw something. Right? That's what I saw. And so, for that reason... God will know what God's going to do because he's God. John 17, verse 25, he makes a reference to this, how he knows the Father. Referring to the Father, he says, the world has not known you, but I know you. But he's, the world doesn't know him, he says, but he has this intimacy with him. And Jesus knew the Father in another, in unique way. There's another thing that's unusual, is that Jesus never lost sight of his main mission. Jesus could have been thrown off by many, many things, like his family. In Mark 3, verse 21, they think he's insane. In John 7, 5, it mentions his brothers don't even believe in him. Now you'd think, if normal humans would be like, well, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe they're right, maybe I'm crazy. But Jesus never did that. He just stayed right on mission and kept on going and waited for them to keep up. And eventually they did. He never was thrown off by his countrymen. He entirely ignored politics. If you're going to set up a new nation, that's how you start. He totally didn't want to go there. He didn't even seem to care to get their support sometimes. Okay, Luke chapter 4, 
I, I realized that I had read this wrong for so many years, okay? And this is where Jesus gets up and he, he reads from Isaiah in the synagogue. Verse 15 says he was being glorified by everyone. And he's this, this traveling preacher that everybody's starting to hear about. And everybody's like, this guy's awesome. That's what it, start, it starts with. He reads then this from Isaiah in his hometown. And then it says in verse 22, all spoke well of him. Now, see, I had read this, and it's like as soon as he said, oh, you know, this is this has been accomplished right now, that's when I had them freak out. It's not when they freak out. They still say good things about him. They speak well of him until he pokes them in the eye. So he says this, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically says, yeah, you say that now. But one day you're going to say to me, physician, heal thyself. And then he quotes from two Old Testament passages that refer to Gentiles being accepted when God's people were and so he pokes him in the eye. And that is when they say, verse 28, and on hearing this, they were enraged. Now, Jesus' movement almost falls off a cliff here. Because they literally try to pull him off, push him off a cliff. Jesus never shows that he desired to even be liked in a certain sense. But if you, use, if you think about what liked means, we mean liking as something between peers, people on the same level. So that really wouldn't make sense for Jesus. It's something between people at the same level, not a superior to the inferior. Right? Your parents, it would be weird if you said, oh, my parents like me. It maybe be like a problem. Why don't they love you? That's, it's different. Love makes sense. Life does not. But Jesus wasn't thrown off by this. He just stayed on track. He was not thrown off by propriety. Now, by propriety, I mean he didn't just do what other people thought were right. The, the rules of society. He didn't abide by those. There's lots of them for here, but I'll give you one example, and that is the way he talks to women. In John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman at the well, he goes to her and he talks to her, and she's shocked. This is not what Jews did. And especially in the Middle East, there's all sorts of rules. Like Ken Bailey, who lived in the Middle East for 40 years, said there's this whole protocol for how close a man can get to a, a stranger woman, and he says, in the 40 years I was there, I never broke that rule. Jesus broke, breaks the rule, and the woman thinks this is strange. His disciples, Jesus' disciples are not there. They eventually come back and they see him talking to her and they're like, this is weird, he's talking with a woman. Right? That was not politically correct back then. And, and then they say, well, what do you what do you want from her? Why are you talking to her? Like, do you need us to get rid of her? Like, this is strange. It gets even more awkward later when Jesus basically says, oh yeah, we're going to stay with the Samaritans for a few days. We're going to get used to this. In Luke chapter 10, there's another example, story of Mary and Martha. And Martha, she's doing all this work and she's making, she's worrying herself about making preparations. You know, we usually we stop here and we wag our finger. Oh, Martha. But let's be real. You'd do some prep, too, if you were having God over for dinner. <laughs> so she's doing all this work, and she's like, and she's getting frustrated. You can just imagine her back there. And oh, she's getting, so she goes, she's like, Jesus, tell, tell her to come back here and help me. She thinks she's going to agree with him. She thinks she's going to be like, yeah, get in the kitchen where you belong, woman. He doesn't say that. He says, actually, she chose wisely. And in that text, it says that Mary sat at his feet. This is the phrase that's used of Paul sitting at the great feet of Gamaliel, well-known rabbi. And Jesus is saying, yeah, the women, they get to sit there too. <coughs> but what Jesus did is also interesting. So those are the things he didn't do. But one of the things that we see with Jesus is the consistency of his character. So skeptics will be like, oh, there's these, these things that don't line up, there's contradictions. But they only look at these little tiny details about 
where Tyre is related to Sidonism, but they don't look at the stuff that actually is very consistent. And Jesus' character is very, very consistent on all four. And so they have to explain, how is this character so consistent? It has been noted that character tends to crumble to power. Robert Ingersoll, he's referring to Lincoln here, he says, if you want to find out what a man is to this very core, give him power. Any man can stand adversity, but only a great man can stand prosperity. Now, that's true of Lincoln, but it is vastly more true of Jesus. Because Jesus had everything, but it didn't go to his head. And then he had everything taken, and he didn't grow resentful or angry about it. Let me suggest that this is part of what was going on when the centurion is looking at Jesus being crucified, and he said, surely this is a righteous man. I, listen, I get there were signs in there too, but I think there's more going on there. I mean, you can imagine the centurion saying, I have seen people that are brought to their death, and I have seen them beg, and I have seen them lash out in anger and threaten. And Jesus goes up, and he makes arrangements for his mother to be taken care of. And then encourages the thief next to him. You can imagine seeing that and saying, surely this is a righteous man. And the weird thing is about this is that in the Gospels, Jesus doesn't even seem to grow in character, which is a, a usual something that we do, well, hopefully. And what Luke, I think, wants you to see way back in Luke 2 is that even when he was a young kid, Jesus' character was very consistent. You know, in that story, that's where, regarding Jesus in the temple at the age of 12. And it says that he grows in wisdom and stature. But notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say he grows in character. His character is remarkably consistent from the beginning of that story. Now, you might be saying, okay, but what about Hebrews 5.8? Doesn't it say that he grew in character there? When it says he learned obedience from what he suffered. I actually don't think that's what it's saying. I don't think it's saying here he grew in character. I think it's referring to he experienced it. You can actually look up the word for obedience here, and in BDAG, it says that it is left, and it specifically cites this verse as referring to the, this idea. It's left through instruction and through experience or practice. So I don't think he's saying he's growing in character. I think he's saying that he experienced what it felt like. Now, if you go and you look at superhero stories, superhero stories oftentimes will have the, the main hero conflicted at various points. It's what makes the story interesting, actually. So, like, do we do right or wrong? What do we do with this power? How do I use it? And the reason they do that is because perfect characters are also perfectly boring. If you made a story of God coming to Earth, let me suggest it would probably go like this. So God comes to Earth. He wants food. So he makes it appear out of thin air. He gets attacked. 10,000 angels come down. He gets resistance from Pharisees. They just disappear. The end. That is not very interesting. And I was talking to John Cryland a while ago. If you don't know who he is, he's the, the song leader. He's like eight foot tall. But he pointed out to me, and I hadn't known this before. He said, did you know that kryptonite was added to Superman's story? Because Superman kept getting these new powers. You know, he could see through things, and he could fly, and, and he's got laser eyes. And at some point, it's like, well, who could stand up to him? The story gets boring. And so they have to weaken him to make the story interesting. But, but that's not what happened in Jesus' story. Jesus has no weakness somehow the story's actually good. 
And can you even imagine constructing a story where a character would humble himself more than Jesus did? Jesus was God. But he came down and lived as a servant. And then he dies the lowliest type of death. Crucifixion was known as servile supplicium, slave's death. Why Roman citizens were not legal to be crucified. He was the guy at the top, and he came to be the guy at the bottom. And while the gospel accounts are remarkably consistent, you should read the false gospels, or maybe not. They're actually pretty entertaining. They have more than one his talking process. Not making it up. Read the infancy gospel of Thomas. Okay, his character, Jesus is totally different. At one point in there, he kills a kid. And in the story, it leaves his parents, quote, wailing for their young child. Now, the story goes on later, and he has a change of heart, and he resurrects the kid. But this is not Jesus. The four Gospels are remarkably consistent. The false Gospels are not. The other thing that Jesus did is, this: he shot for the moon. He went, he went big. Go home or go big. Matthew 24, he lays out how his kingdom is going to take place, as if it's just right around corner. And he says, oh, yeah, you know, the kingdom's going to be preached to all the world, to all nations. And then the end will come, to the end of time. Now, this may be like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, we see the church, it makes sense. Okay, but you got to understand, he had this fairly tiny little group in this little, tiny little country. And you might even feel like, uh, you're looking around, this does not look like this has become an international movement to the end of time. One off the road, he says, it is not human to lay out projects transcending all human ability like this of Jesus, which can't be completed in thousands of years. And you just act like, no big deal, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. But I mean, you call him crazy, except for it works. And, and this idea that Jesus stayed out of politics, I think, is more surprising than we might think. I mean, people will talk about how, oh, you know, I'm going to vote like Jesus. Well, if you did vote like Jesus, you probably wouldn't be telling anybody. So Jesus has this tiny band of followers. And these guys would take over the world. And this is audacious. And how did he do it? The way he did it is so weird. Did he seek the favor of the leaders? No. Okay, John 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he comes very respectfully. And Jesus goes right into it. Oh, yeah, have you been born again? And he just goes right into it. And you're like, oh, this is kind of weird. And then he he goes on. And you made how weird this was about this whole idea of being born again. Okay, we know what this means. But this was strange. You mentioned Nicodemus. What is he supposed to do? Go to his mom's and mom's and be awkward for both of us. I gotta be born again. Wait, he doesn't know what that means, but Jesus kind of beats him up here. Jesus calls him out. He says, You're Israel teacher and you don't know what this means? Jesus did not curry the favor of the leaders. The rich young ruler. Somebody comes in very respectfully, runs to Jesus, and asks him how to have eternal life. There's so much right here. He asks the right person the right question and he asks it in the right way. And Jesus winds up sending him away. And it's even the disciples are astonished by this. And it turns out that calling the leaders whitewashed tombs was not an obvious way to grow a new movement. So he did not curry the favor of the leaders. So you might think maybe he's more like a populist. He curries, he's looking for the favor of the people. No. Okay, in the feeding of the 5,000, he literally has the people eating out of his hands. And then he tells them, oh, but you guys are following me for the wrong reasons. And then it gets weirder, because he goes on, and he says, unless you eat my flesh, 
And then he even qualifies it. He says, and this is real food and drink. Which some translations will translate 6, verse 55, is this. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Now, if you know, remember he's talking to Jews. You know that there's these lists of what's clean and unclean in the Old Testament. And I'm not an expert of what's on that list, but I'm pretty sure even flesh is not in the bank. And he says this, and then it gets stranger. And I realized that I had been reading this passage, this passage wrong, which is John 6, 68, where Peter, you know, people start leaving Jesus because of this. This is weird. And then he asks, hey, like, what are you guys going to do? Are you going to stick around? And, and I read this like this is a positive thing, and Peter's like, you don't know, we're... You have eternal life. And that's how I read this. Let me suggest that maybe I was reading this wrong. Okay, go back and read it in more detail. And there's a few verses before that it says that the disciples were grumbling about this. They thought this was weird. I mean, they may be thinking, like, you know, I get being a disciple of Jesus probably meant having Jesus over for dinner, but I didn't think it meant literally. And then in that context, reread Peter's response. I mean, he's. He's basically like, well, there's no second option. I mean, this is the only option. This is what Peter didn't say. It's all yeah, it makes perfect sense. He didn't say that. This was weird even for Peter. And you think that is chasing your followers away the right way to make an international coalition? But this is exactly what Jesus did. The weird thing is it actually worked. Now, the, the problem with this is that non-believers have to make sense out of this too. And so what do they think happened? How do they think the story came together? And this is the problem that they have. So they think that there's, oh, this is rabbi, and these 12 disciples, some basic details, and then people just started making stuff up. And then they wrote it down, and somehow the gospel came out of it. And that does not make sense. And the skeptics will then go on to say, well, these early Christians, they were too dumb to figure out that Jesus was, his story was false. But then they grant them near godlike powers to make literature. It just, it just doesn't follow. And so they have to come up with an answer. And so I think all these stories of contradictions are missing the point in a certain sense because they have to answer why is the rest of the story remarkably consistent. In the junior high class, the at the evidences class, uh, what the teachers had different students write parts of the story, so they just gave them the broad outline. They said, fill in the story. And it was all over the place. The guy's dying, and he's, he's living again, and he's dying. He's all over the place. I mean, it was a mess, okay? That is how the gospel should be. But they weren't. And so skeptics, they have to give you an answer to this. They'll tell you about this whole this corrupting process of how the gospels got corrupted, but somehow the gospels don't come out corrupted. That's a problem. And then they, like I said, they make the early church and apostles just have, they have to be super, super smart. And I don't think they were super smart. I think they were just like normal people writing down what they saw. And so even if they say that this miracle parts of it was just added, they miss the point. Because even if the miracles were added to the story, Jesus' character is the story. And I didn't I have not seen Lazarus after he was raised. I didn't see Jesus walk on water. But I can see the miracle of his character. You're stuck with that either way. John Gilson sums it up. He says, Skeptics have a mystery on their hands. They cannot deny the effectiveness of Jesus' strategy, but they have no brilliant leader to attribute it to. They have, in effect, the worldwide movement of Jesus' followers, but not much of a Jesus, not much of a cause to attribute it to. And it seems to me that should bother them more than it does. Do you remember the story of the law being given at Mount Sinai? 
And God reveals himself in his power, with his thundering voice. And the people ask it to stop. They don't want to hear it. Do you remember Jesus' coronation? Literally his crowning achievement. He is anointed. He wears a purple robe. He has a crown. People bow to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. And he is declared by the authorities in multiple languages he's king. But there's a twist. The woman that anoints him, Jesus says, this is for my burial. She may be anointing him because he's the king. And Jesus isn't disagreeing with her. He's saying it's both. I am king because I belong. And Jesus wears a purple robe, but it hides the quivering flesh that has been opened by the whips. And he wears a crown made of thorns twisted onto his head. And people bow to him and call him king in mockery. And he is declared by the authorities to be king. And those signs are attached to the cross holding his naked, writhing body. Bonhoeffer had done some excellent writing on the crucifixion right before he died. Bonhoeffer found himself in the jail of the Third Reich. And he knew he was not going to leave that jail except for in a body bag. And so he's thinking to head to his death. And he starts thinking about another man who gave his life. He starts thinking of Jesus and his crucifixion. And he says, he says, you know, the cross is not a religious symbol. It is the most irreligious symbol. And what he meant by that is that if we human beings were to write the story of God, it would have the heavens opening up with power and with light, and it would have transcendence, and it would have this booming voice. But look at the Gospels. They don't look like that. It has death, and it has grime, and it has pain, and it has poverty, and it has what looks like weakness. Our version of the story, if we were to make it up, would look a whole lot more like Mount Sinai than Mount Calvary. What Bonhoeffer says, he says, this is a story. It doesn't read like a story written by man about God. It reads like a story from God about God. It's weird, but it's weird in every right way. There's a movie made in 1964 called The Gospel According to St. Matthew, and this is unusual in three ways. One, it quotes from Matthew exclusively. And by exclusively, I mean he doesn't add extra dialogue to it. It just quotes from Matthew. Like, the guy thought the gospel according to Matthew was so good, it should just be quoted unadorned. Two, the director made it after reading the gospel when he couldn't leave his hotel room. The Pope was in the area, and they had the roads closed off. He's like, oh, I'm stuck in this hotel, so what do I do? Well, there's a Bible. So he starts reading it. He's like, whoa, hey, hold on. This, this story is something. The third weird thing, he was an atheist. This guy read the Gospels, and even as an atheist, recognized there was something special about the story. So much so that he just makes a movie about it and quotes it directly. Now, I too have read a religious book left in a hotel. I was in a hotel in Las Vegas. Okay, that sounds weird. I was for a security conference. Okay. <laughs> so I was sitting there in a hotel. Now I'm, not, now I'm going to make it really weird because I saw the religious book for Buddhism. So I, I opened it to a random location. 
And this is what I read. I read about Buddha and his followers drinking their own urine. Okay, that's weird in every wrong way. Here's my advice to you. Let's keep it weird, people. And what I mean by that, don't get me wrong, I don't mean to be weird for weirdness sake. We all know religious people who, who somehow confuse piety with weirdness. Okay, I'm not just saying be weird. But some people seem, some Christians seem to think that weirdness is a spiritual gift. To which I say to them, mission accomplished. Okay? Have you ever seen these, the high church, like religious services? And you think of what religious hats look like? Why are the religious hats so weird? They're always weird. But they're, they're weird for no good reason. I'm not saying be weird like that. I'm saying be weird in every right way. Because if this world is not our home, we are going to look weird in this world. Because this isn't our home. And so you be like Jesus. Just stay on track and let the results follow. Even if the results don't follow in your lifetime. You would think that if God were to come to earth, that he would be distant and inaccessible. Kind of like what he felt like at Mount Sinai, where the people said they wanted to see God, and then they saw him, they're like, oh, maybe not. But when you read the Gospels, Jesus comes down like a friend, not a buddy, there's respect there, but as a friend. Of course, Bushnell writes, he said, is there a single idealized, like even a fictional, an idealized historical or fictional character who's portrayed as supremely powerful and incomparably humble. As morally exacting, but also merciful. As equal with God, the exact imprint of his nature, yet perfectly obedient to the Father. As divine, yet utterly human. As unfathomably complex, but simple and intimately personal. The gospel is the story in which God will call you a friend. And it seems to me that that fact should inspire us more than it does.